As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today is a hopeful Olympian. It's Mr. Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. I'm assuming you still have Olympic aspirations. Oh, of course. Yeah, table tennis is going to be my sport, and uh, this is going to be my opportunity to get there. It really is. <laughs> I, I like that. I, I, I picture you as being pretty good at table tennis. Is, is that actually your sport of choice? It's not my sport of choice, but I think if I thought about this before, if I were to make it to the Olympics at any one thing, like what would it be? It certainly wouldn't be any winter olympic sport out here in arizona we don't have much chance to practice those and as oh, no. far as as far as uh, summer olympics go man i'm not i'm not i'm not much of a track threat or a swimmer so i think table tennis is my my biggest opportunity all right well for joe it could be table tennis uh, i like that you go the official name and not ping pong well done joe uh for the u.s and for jason christ it could still be uh soccer we could still get a men's team at the olympics we're going to talk a little bit about the usa's victory over the dominican republic in olympic qualifying later on but first we're going to start with the u.s men's senior team we do have a friendly this week we do have additional roster updates uh joe we've got lots of people coming and going and then one player coming back uh what what's the latest that you have let's kind of go back and forth on some of this news yeah so u.s soccer really hit us with a a one-two punch here so at first i woke up one morning and it was tyler adams nico (laughs) joachini and timothy way having to withdraw from this upcoming senior national team camp preparing these guys for games against jamaica and northern ireland adams joachini and way had to withdraw due to quarantine regulations in their areas very understandable and so the u.s soccer added in a couple of players they added in christian capis cappy cappy cappis not really sure which one we're going on that one. Either one. Okay. Whatever. They added Christian in C. Right. They added in Christian C, and they also added in Jordan Sibachu to kind of make up the numbers there. So that all makes sense, right? And then a couple days later, I believe it was a couple days later, they hit us with mm-hmm. a little a little turn. Updated quarantine regulations allow for Nicholas Joachini to come back to camp, so to actually be readmitted to this training camp. And it also allows for additional travel for Gio Reyna, Chris Richards, and Josh Sargent. To Northern Ireland. So those three guys originally right. were only allowed to stay for the Jamaica game. Now that's changed. So to sum up everything that's happened, 
Tyler Adams and Tim Weah, no longer in this camp. I'm bummed about that, Taylor. I'm sure you are as well. Nico Joachini, nothing changed. He's still involved in this camp. And now we kind of get a couple of opportunities, or we get one more opportunity to see Gio Reyna, Chris Richards, and Josh Sargent in that second friendly against Northern Ireland, as opposed to before where we weren't going to have that. Right. We are going to be doing more of an in-depth preview uh, tomorrow on that Jamaica game, or the Jamaica game. Uh, (laughs) Myself and Joe Lowry will be doing that. But we did want to talk a little bit about the roster here, just to like mostly just because there's been so much shopping and changing that I wanted to make sure I knew who I should be looking at before I started looking into this one. Uh, And I am sort of bummed we won't have Tyler Adams and Tim Weah, as you mentioned. Uh, I am happy that the list of players we won't have for the second game has gone from a whole bunch of people down to just... uh, Brooks and Cannon. I think John Brooks, maybe Wolfsburg, like not quarantine related, but mostly just not wanting to risk losing him. So he's being permitted to play one game. I don't know about uh, Portugal and Reggie Cannon, but I'm assuming it's still uh, COVID restrictions there. But it does mean we'll get more opportunities to see more different players and more games. So that might change what we think will happen with the starting 11. That might change what will happen against Northern Ireland on Sunday. But Joe and I are going to talk in much more detail uh, about both of those games tomorrow. For now, Joe, anything else to talk about with the senior team before we talk Olympics? This is more for tomorrow, but I just want to float it out there right now. I'm really wondering who the number six is going to be on this roster because Tyler Adams was the only real senior level number six involved in the original camp roster. You get Christian C added in and he's more of a defensive (laughs) midfielder from what I've seen in the past. But then outside of outside of him and Owen Otisoe, you don't really have a traditional number six on this roster. So, yeah, we'll talk about that more tomorrow. But just something I've been thinking about and trying to figure out, but I haven't really gotten anywhere yet. So we'll see. Wow. You're not. You're not wrong, man. I hadn't really <laughs> thought about that either, because Jackson Ewell with the U23s, we're obviously going to talk about him. No Tyler Adams. So maybe we get that that sort of like, oh, we're going to try this guy and see if he can do the job. Uh, or maybe you do go with a a less experienced but more fitting into the system type player like an Otisoe or a Christian C. Uh, but we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the actual proper way to pronounce that uh, last name on tomorrow's <laughs> show. For now, Joe, let's talk USA 4, Dominican Republic 0. It is wildly cliche to call it a game of two halves. This was very much a game of two halves. Uh, Nil-nil at halftime, much, much better in the second half. Before we get to the differences there, let's talk about the starting 11. We weren't sure what we were going to get. We thought we might get some rotation. I would say we got a decent amount of rotation in this one. What did you make of that starting 11? How are you feeling when you saw it for the first time? A heavily rotated group. I I felt fine Mm -hmm. when I saw it because... The idea of this game was that the U.S. was supposed to win. The Dominican Republic had six teenagers in their starting 11. They hadn't really been at this stage before as a nation. They struggled against Mexico to really mount much attacking um, attacking play and create many chances. This was a game that the U.S. was always supposed to win, and ultimately they did that. It, it, not, it wasn't pretty in the first 45 minutes, as you said, Taylor, but the lineup was fine, I thought. The biggest question mark was in midfield, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But looking through the lineup, six players came in uh, for six of the starters from that Costa Rica game. JT Marcinkowski slotted in a goalkeeper for David Ochoa. Julian Araujo came in and started a right back over Aaron Herrera. Henry Kessler played right center back and coming in for Pineda and then pushing Glad over to left center back. And then it was Andres Perea and Johnny Cardoso in for Hassani Dotson and Georgi Mihailovic in midfield. And then up front, it's Sebastian Saucedo in for Benji Michelle, pushing Jonathan Lewis over to the to the right side in this game as well. So mm-hmm. a lot of rotation, but I don't think that was a bad move by Jason Christ, certainly, because again, this is a game you're supposed to win, and ultimately they got the job done. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say there were some surprises in there. Like, I shouldn't have been surprised that it was Marcinkowski because we knew there might be some rotation. Uh, but I was still sad not to see David Ochoa yeah, back. Same. So uh, there's not m- there's not much. As we kind of speculated, there wouldn't be a lot to learn about the goalkeeper position from this game. So maybe that was just an opportunity to get Marcinkowski a game, and then maybe we'll get Ochoa back from Mexico. Maybe it will be someone else entirely. Uh, Araujo, I think, made sense starting it right back. I think we, we talked in our preview about how they were a little bit of a toss-up. It could be a Araujo, it could be Herrera. Uh, you could talk either of us into either one of those, so I didn't mind that. And I didn't mind Kessler either, just because I feel bad that we had to make that change, but I think like for the way it went... who? What's the center back's name? Forgive me. Mauricio Pineda came off, allowing Thank Henry you. Kessler Thank to come you. on. So I did that thing in my head where I get Pineda and Pereira, or Perea confused, and I get nervous for a moment that I'm going to say the wrong one. So I just wanted to make sure it was Pineda before or, I, I Taylor, committed to it. Orlando City has Oscar Pereira as a head coach, Mauricio Pereira <laughs> as a number 10, and Andres Pereira <laughs> as a number 6 slash number 8. See? So yeah, it can always get worse. All right. I appreciate that. But so we have Kessler come in instead of Pineda, which at first I, I kind of forgot uh, Pineda's distribution and how it was not particularly good. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, well, I guess we're just seeing a different rotation. And then it occurred to me when I looked at everybody's post game, here's what I want to see going forward. Here's the best possible 11. I think Pineda has sort of made people concerned enough that I think everybody felt a little bit more confident with Kessler in this game. I don't know as much about him, Joe. How familiar are you with Kessler? Uh, the only thing I'm familiar with him is it seemed to be a lot of people saying he's incredibly underrated. Yeah, he came into MLS last year as a rookie. Uh, for the New England Revolution. He played left center back. And so that's what I thought we were going to see from him when we saw the lineup. I thought Kessler was going to be on the left and Me Justin too. Glad was going to be on the right. But they swapped. Justin Glad usually plays right center back for RSL. And so it seemed to make sense that they would fall that way. But Jason Cray said, no, I'm going to swap it around. Kessler is right footed. So it did make sense to have him as a right center back. But the New England Revolution, I said this in our preview show, they don't really build from the back. They don't really break lines with their center backs in the same way that the U.S. are trying to do. And so I, I just really didn't know what to expect from him in this game passing wise, which is really important for the center backs. We saw that against Costa Rica. And to be honest with you, Taylor, I don't think we saw much from Kessler or Glad on the ball in this game just because of how timid the U.S. were in that first half attacking wise. They didn't really have their center backs striding forward into space. They didn't have their center backs trying to break lines with the ball. They tried out different possession rotations that took the responsibility off of those players And I think that was a bit of a mistake because I do think Kessler and Glad still could have broken down this Dominican Republic block with their passing ability, even if it even if on a regular day, it's not quite as strong as Pineda's passing ability. I I would say we saw a lot of them on the ball in that first half. I would say we didn't see a lot of them on the ball doing anything. Exactly. It was a lot of lateral passing. It was a lot of very conservative play. Uh, That's something that Jason Christ talked about in his post-match interview, that the guys were maybe too cautious, especially both in attacking and defensive transition. Specifically attacking transition, I think they didn't want to get caught. They didn't want to leave any opportunities open or vulnerable. So they didn't really do that much attacking in that first half. Again, we're not quite moving into tactics yet, but I, I think, yeah, neither neither of the center backs made me feel that much better about their ability to unlock defenses and pick out opportunities and cause problems for uh, the defense ahead of them. I would say the midfield didn't really do that either, at least in the first half. And that was one where I understood what Christ was going for. And it was, in my mind, a response to the latter stages of the U.S.'s opener for Costa Rica, where it felt like there was more maybe creativity or better passing with Jackson Ewell further forward that I think my read on that was that Christ sees Jackson Ewell as a player who can 
picks smarter passes, can play diagonals, but can find the through balls maybe a little bit more effectively than most other players in that midfield, except for Georgi Mihailovic. But in that first game, I don't think Mihailovic did enough of it for Jason Christ to be satisfied. So my understanding was Yule goes further forward to help with possession, and then Perea comes in as that holding midfielder to sort of do the physical work, do the running, body people off the ball when he needs to, and then keep the ball moving. That's my read on that midfield, Joe. How does that fit up with what you were thinking heading into this game? No, it fits very well. When you look at the lineup and you see, okay, Andres Perea is the number six, or when you turn on the game and you see Andres Perea is the number six, Jackson Ewell is a left-sided center mid, and Johnny Cardoso is the right-sided center mid, it does feel a little bit backwards, right? Perea is more rangy. He fits closer into that classic box-to-box number eight profile, Whereas Jackson Yule, we've seen him with the senior team before, and we saw it against Costa Rica with this U23 group. He's the number six. He's the deep-lying playmaker. He's the, I'm going to hit the Burhalter diagonal that we talked about with Michael Bradley over and over again. He's that player, but they're flip-flopped. And I, I totally agree with your reasoning there, Taylor. I think Jackson Yule does bring more creativity higher up the field. And so if your thought process, if you're Jason Christ and your thought process is, we're going to have a lot of possession higher up the field, we want our number eights to be able to break down that block a little bit then maybe I understand it. But I can also see the other side and say, well, why would you move your best distributor away from the middle of the yeah. field? And and why would you want Andres Perea, who's not really a line breaker, he's not really a lock picker, why would you want him sitting deeper? And this is, this is the question that the U.S. men's national team, the senior team, is going to be asking for a while into the future because Tyler Adams is much more of an Andres Perea than he is a Jackson Ewell. And so I, I can talk myself around it and, and go in circles and circles and circles here, but... I also think that Jackson Ewell playing as a number eight, uh, he was in that role because of how the U.S. was trying to rotate and attack in possession. And he was that that role he was playing was designed to get him touches deeper on the ball and, and deeper in midfield than the system that the U.S. kind of rolled out last game. So there are a lot of different reasons that I think Ewell could have been logically that number eight, but I'm not really sure a lot of them worked in this game, at least in the first half. I agree with you. And that's the key distinction. I'm sure people have already written us angry tweets about how can you say Yule is creative? How can you say he's a playmaker? We didn't. We wouldn't. I would say that within the context of this team and the players that have been assembled and the players that are there as central midfield options, there's not a ton of creativity. So in terms of a group that doesn't have a lot of creativity, I think what we're saying is Yule has the best passing range in my mind of those players. And I think that's what Jason Christ was going for. I think he also brings veteran presence and a little bit of calm on the ball. And maybe that's also what Christ was expecting of more time on the ball for Yule, further up the field with the U.S. in better attacking positions. And I need somebody there to be calm and not just force shots and not just go for like little lifted balls over the top. Because again, I think they were expecting to have much of the ball in uh, the Dominican Republic's defensive third, and how do you pick your options? How do you find your way through? That seemed to be the question that the U.S. was prepared to set up to answer. And I think part of the problem was that that's not what Costa Rica, excuse me, not what the Dominican Republic set out to do. Uh, so I would like to talk about what the problems were for the U.S. in that first half uh, in just a second. Joe, anything else on the lineup? We had, as you said, Jonathan Lewis, Jesus Ferreira, and Sebastian uh, Soto as your front three, your attacking three. And again, that made sense based on what we saw from the first game. I thought Soto came in and did a lot took people on, tried to be creative, tried to frustrate the opposition. And I think, again, looking at this from a, we want quick runs and darting runs and players on the ball who are going to try some stuff. I think that is where that front three and that midfield three came from in preparation for the Dominican Republic. And just to to kind of correct you there, Sebastian Salcedo. I know that's what you meant, not Sebastian Soto. We got two Sebastians, lots of Perea talk as well. Perea, Pereira, 
Pare- no, Pareja. I did actually write it down wrong in my notes, though. So That's okay. thank you for that. That's okay. So Sebastian, in my, in my starting eleven, I wrote it down, and then everywhere else, I had <laughs> uh, Salcedo. What's wrong? What's wrong with me, Joe? Sebastian Salcedo, I thought was the best, the best player in that front three. His skill on the ball, his ability to cut yep. inside from the left wing. A lot of the U.S.'s attacks were coming down that left side with Sam Vines, Jackson Yule, and Sebastian Salcedo. I don't think that's a coincidence when you compare those three players and their quality, and especially their quality on the ball, versus Julian Araujo, Johnny Cardoso, and Jonathan Lewis. It's it's almost night and day with what they're able to do on the ball. Salcedo was able to put his foot on the ball, to cut inside, to create some danger. Same with Jackson Yule, to be honest. I think this speaks to your point from earlier, Taylor. Jackson Yule was able to do some things in advanced positions. One of his best moments in this game was, I believe, in the 22nd minute. Jackson Yule found space between the Dominican Republic's defensive and midfield lines, turned, or got on the ball, turned, was fouled, quickly stands up, and then plays a quick free kick in behind to Sam Vines, who then puts a dangerous cross into the box. So that left side was working kind of kind of well in that first half relative to how the rest of the team was functioning. And Saucedo and Jackson Yule and Sam Vines were all pretty big parts of that. All right, we're going to talk about that first half, about what the Dominican Republic did to nullify some of the United States' attacking threat. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 u.s-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We are back and we are here to figure out what the Dominican Republic were doing last night. I think Jason Kreiss was equally confused, yep. uh, but at halftime sorted it out. He talked a little bit about that in the post-match interview, saying that he wasn't really expecting them or the opponent was difficult for sitting so deep, but also playing a completely different shape, which is what they did. At times, it was a 3-4-2-1. Routinely, it was more of a 5-4-1, especially uh, in the latter stages of the first half and certainly in the second half as well. And I am of the opinion that that change in shape from the Mexico game to this game against the United States really caused the U.S. problems, not just because it was much better for the Dominican Republic, I think it was, but also because I think the U.S. game planned for sort of two banks of four, very deep defending, and having to find their way through wide or central, and then to have this just different look with more players in spaces that they weren't expected to be. I think it really caused the U.S. create uh, problems both in creativity, but also in just sort of understanding where they were supposed to be because I think in training there was supposed to be space and now in the game there's no space and there's no time and nothing really happened as a result. Taylor, I completely agree with you. You texted me something to that effect either at halftime or just into the second half. I don't remember as we were both watching this game. Yeah, so you texted me at halftime and you said, I think Christ was expecting something totally different than what we're seeing because the U.S. had so much difficulty attacking and breaking the Dominican Republic down. What they were doing in possession wasn't working. And and you texted me that, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe not. I feel like the U.S. would have adjusted if, if they thought it was going to be a different shape and they would have been able to make changes in half. And then lo and behold, they come out in the second half. The U.S. comes out in the second half 
and they attack in a largely different way in possession. Yes, they're still trying to use the ball to break down the opponent, but they were doing it with different positioning, and that worked so much better. It was night and day from the first half to the second half. You were spot on, Taylor. I think the U.S. was expecting a 4-4-2 or maybe a 4-5-1, but they definitely weren't expecting a 5-4-1 because Mm -hmm. the U.S. in possession, if you don't mind me getting into the United States tactics just a bit, the U.S. in possession with Jackson Yule and Johnny Cardoso playing as the number eights in front of and in wide of Andres Perea, whenever the ball would move to the left side where Jackson Yule was, Yule would drop into Sam Vines' space and play almost in that fullback space. Sometimes it was a little higher, a little narrower, but roughly in that area. Sam Vines then would push up and Jonathan Lewis would tuck in. The same thing happens on the right. Cardoso drops to the right. Julian Araujo pushes up. Sebastian Saucedo tucks inside. That's a very common possession rotation. It's supposed to get you an overload out wide, or at the very least, it's supposed to pull out the defensive players on the wings and, and to have them move and shift and be disorganized. Because the Dominican Republic were in a 5-4-1, they naturally have one wide midfielder, one wing back, and one wide center back already on the wings. That neutralizes your advantage. You can't pull a player out because they already have three guys over there. Yeah, you can if you time it right and if you do different movements, maybe put another runner down that side. But it's not as simple as it is if you run that same rotation, the eight drops in, the fullback pushes high, the winger tucks inside, versus a 4-4-2. Because in a 4-4-2, if, if the Dominican Republic are defending in a 4-4-2, they have the fullback, they have the the winger or the wide midfielder, they don't really have another wide defender. Yeah, you might pull a center back out and, and have them defend the third player for the U.S., but then there's a giant gap in your in your back line. So the U.S., I think we're trying to run that rotation in possession, a rotation they didn't run against Costa Rica, because they were expecting to be able to pull apart a 4-4-2 or maybe a 4-5-1 yeah. and create a gap in the back line. The gap was never there because of how the Dominican Republic was defending in this game. The U.S. changed it at halftime, stopped doing that rotation, and suddenly things started to look a lot better. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I won't I won't push us that far <laughs> just yet. But yeah, you're spot on, Taylor. That's my really long-winded way of saying, yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think to, to double down on it further, the idea, I think, with what the U.S. is hoping to do is just that, yeah, if you have those two banks of four— but maybe one is going to be a bit more narrow, either the back line or the midfield line. But either way, if you can create a 3v1 or a 3v2 or a 2v1 out wide, you can kind of combine, find some space for some one twos. And then inevitably, another defender has to slide over to cover, as you talked about, Joe. And it opens up like opportunities. When that doesn't happen, what the U.S., I think, could then do is, OK, well, we've committed numbers to this side. Costa Rica have game plan for that. So now we've got to overload elsewhere, which does mean uh, Perea stepping further up. It does mean one of the center backs stepping in and almost being like a flat two there. So then you have them as options. And what instead was the case is I felt like Perea would stay a little bit further deep. You'd have the two center backs staying right there as well. So you had that triangle, but it tended to be about 25 to 30 yards away from where the ball was in the channel. So if it does go back central... It then requires slowing down and connecting a couple lateral passes before everybody moves back into the shape they need to be. And this was a thing, especially at the end of the first half, that Stu Holden was sort of bemoaning, that it kept being these five and ten yard passes to one side or the other. But Costa Rica, all they had to do was shuffle over and then shuffle back, and they were in the right position. And it wasn't doing much. The U.S., again, felt very cautious. They felt very hesitant to overextend themselves or leave themselves vulnerable which I don't really get. I guess maybe that's just tournament soccer and that they were so concerned about going down and then having to break down a bunkered opponent with a like a goal deficit. But you would ex- you would think that maybe one or two players would try something, would try to go at people. I felt like uh, Saucedo 
would have been that person. I think Jonathan Lewis on occasion was trying to be that person. Jesus Ferreira certainly, but another frustrating time of him not getting as many looks on the ball, as much time on the ball when he did. I thought the Dominican Republic did a really good job of just leaving a foot in, leaving a stud in here and there. I feel like they, they knocked him around a little bit. They they would happily get physical if that's what the situation required. And so I think what that left was a Dominican Republic team content to sit shuffle from one side to the other, have those numbers back, and really force the U.S. to try something. The U.S., for their part, I think, hesitant to try too much for fear of getting caught out. Didn't really... Not that they backed away from the physical aspect of the game, but I think at least in the first half, were sort of so focused on everything else that then getting hit and knocked and pushed and shoved, I think, wasn't part of the thinking, part of the estimation of what was happening. And I think that's another thing that Jason Kreiss sort of had to have his players deal with at halftime. Joe, anything else in particular you want to talk about from this first half before we talk about the changes that were made? We've talked about the specific possession rotation that the U.S. did that was different from their Costa Rica game. But we haven't really talked about the shape. And I want to, I want to just make it clear. It was roughly a 4-3-3, similar shape to what we saw against Costa Rica, similar shape to what I think the U.S. is going to run pretty much every game going forward and every moment of every game. But Taylor, I don't know if you saw this, the shape in that first half within that 4-3-3, it was really poor. I, I thought it looked rough. I thought the wingers and fullbacks, their timing was off. Their movement was off. Sometimes it was weirdly congested in certain areas. Sacedo and Yule and Vines for, even for them being the better half, the better, you know, the better wing in this game, they were still running into each other or they were too close together or they were yeah. in the same vertical line. The same thing would happen on the right side with Araujo and Jonathan Lewis. They'd be standing maybe, you know, 15 yards, 20 yards apart from each other vertically, but they'd be standing, you know, Araujo would be in Jonathan Lewis's shadow. They're one in front of the other. There's no, there's no staggering. There's no variation in how they were spaced out. Then you add in the number eights dropping into the fullback space and things almost just got more complicated. The number eights and the center backs started to get in each other's way. Taylor, the one way that the U.S. had real success and it caused them a lot of problems as well, but one of the main ways I should say that the U.S. had success against Costa Rica was Justin Glad and Pineda driving forward with the ball and breaking lines. Yeah, they had tons of turnovers in that game as well, but that was a big attacking method for the U.S. last game. In this game, Justin Glad and Henry Kessler really couldn't drive forward with the ball because every time they got the ball, Jackson Yule, not every time, but a lot of times, Jackson Yule or Johnny Cardoso would drop deep and get in their space. So then you don't have the center backs driving forward and breaking down the Dominican Republic's block. You just have a bunch of numbers congested, congested at the back and the spacing's all off. So that was my biggest issue overall in this first half. The, the shape was poor. And it's hard when you get a bunch of new players in the lineup. I get that. You know, mistakes happen and, and tactical mistakes happen. But at the same time, Jason Christ had three weeks with this group coming into camp. He probably knows what lineup he's shooting for in the second game. You'd think that they'd look a little bit more cohesive. I'm just glad for for him and for this whole team that they did come out of the second half and look much better shape-wise in possession. Yeah, and so t two more negatives, then we'll move to a more positive second half. I think you're absolutely right, Joe, that it was just numbers in places they didn't need to be. And I did see on occasion, like, you'd have two people within five yards of each other, and then they would sort of have that moment of like, oh, we're in each other's space. Yeah. We better try something different. And they would make the same run. They would move into the same space from that space. It's youth soccer stuff, man. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think part of that is maybe not being quite – 
like not quite expecting what the Dominican Republic were throwing at them. But it is, again, that that uh, aversion to risk that if you don't trust your center backs to play those balls because of maybe what happened against Costa Rica, maybe you don't want to get caught in possession. You don't want to turn the ball over. You don't want to be too slow. I think we do then have midfielders dropping in to try to pick the ball up off the center back. But then if they're occupying that space, as you said, Joe, the center backs can't get into it. And now even if they do find a way through or they do connect a pass or two, you then have a 30-yard gap between <laughs> that player on the ball and anybody else ahead of them. And if Jesus Ferreira has moved in to try to find some space or one of the wingers is still a little bit too wide, you're absolutely right that the shape just became disjointed at best or overly confusing at worst. And either way, it then makes people slow down. It makes the decision-making less instantaneous. And I think that's where, to bring it back to the original point, it becomes, oh, yeah, you have three players standing in the same 10-yard space because they were all making runs at different times, but things slowed down. There was a lateral pass here. There was a drop back there. Now they're trying to play it forward. But by then, all the runs have already happened. And I think it was that lack of quick thinking, decision-making, one- and two-touch passing that also caused the U.S. a lot of creative problems in the first half. Yeah, and again, that's why it was so refreshing to see the change for the second half. Not a Mm -hmm. lot changes personnel-wise. Sebastian Soto comes in for Jesus Ferreira, who really struggled to make any mark on the game in the first 45 minutes. He gets a yellow card. You really can't risk him getting another yellow card, I, I guess. I, it's a tough situation with Jesus Ferreira. So Soto comes in, mm-hmm. but Jason Christ, Taylor, if you're ready for us to move into the second half, yeah. Jason Christ changes things. And we can go back and forth on this a little bit. But the biggest thing that I noticed before I flip it to you, they stopped doing that number eight wide rotation. Jackson Ewell and Johnny mm-hmm. Cardoso still came out and started the second half in front of Andres Perea but they weren't moving into the fullback space. They were staying inside. They were staying more narrow, still getting on the ball, but they were doing it in more advanced positions and actually causing the Dominican Republic issues. And at the same yep. time, they were staying out of the center back space. That for me was a huge thing. On the first goal, it was Justin Glad who plays the entry pass into Jonathan Lewis that eventually leads to the goal from Jackson Yule. It's a few seconds after Lewis gets on the ball from Glad, but Glad's pass keys that sequence. It starts that sequence. That doesn't happen in the first half because Jackson Ewell is getting in his way. So I think, I think even just that one tweak of saying, okay, the rotation that we planned and, and the, the movement that we planned for and the defensive shape that we thought the Dominican Republic were going to have, they're not doing that. It wasn't working. Let's keep the midfielders inside and then we can have our center backs start to get more involved. I think that did wonders in the second 45. I think it did, certainly did wonders. I think it also explains why the Sebastian Soto sub made more sense. Because when that happened, I thought, like, we saw this against Costa Rica. He's not as mobile as Jesus Ferreira. He's not going to drop in to create overloads and find space to them, help facilitate attacks. He's going to lead the line. He's going to be a target striker. And he he was more of a drop-in, link-up play uh, attacker at times than I expected him to be. But I think what really made it look better is that, to your point, Joe, you had that midfield three central. And so when he's dropping in, he's linking up with three players who are there. It's not the right-sided number eight has slid out to the channel, but the right-wing attacker is still sort of over there. So too is the right-back. The other central midfielder has also slid over just because you don't want huge gaps opening up. So now, if the ball goes to Soto, he has nobody within 30 yards of him. In this case, with the U.S. keeping numbers in the middle, he's able to link up. He's able to combine. We get more one-two. We we one-twos. We get more layoffs that quickly then lead to transition attacks. So that substitution, which initially kind of filled me with doubt, instead, pretty in the first five or ten minutes, 
made me feel like, oh, okay, he has made proactive changes to keep numbers in the middle, but now we will continue to get the fullbacks attacking down the channel, continuing to combine with the wingers, and now we're going to have more numbers in more attacking positions trying to find more space. And I think from that point, really from the opening couple minutes where the U.S. went after the Dominican Republic, pressured them, kept moving with the ball, kept trying to play forward, kept trying to play aggressive balls when they were on, it just seemed like it it was kind of completely over and i'm not one to tweet sort of like hubris uh like like be careful what you wish for sort of tweets but i think i tweeted before the first goal like it's coming they're going to score a goal because it felt like they had figured out the dominican republic the u.s had gotten the dominant hand but more than just having possession which they did in the first half and more than just kind of moving the ball and looking for opportunities they never looked very vulnerable to dominican republic attacks but they never looked like they were going to create and once the second half began and they still didn't look vulnerable to uh to counterattacks but they in instead looked much more likely to score. That's where I felt like they figured this out. This is going to finish with a couple goals. And so I'm happy that it did. That's not to toot my own horn. It's just to say that this was a game where it very quickly became clear. This is going to be a win. Yeah, the shape was much tighter in the second half. Players knew where they needed to be and they got there with urgency in a way that we didn't yep. see really outside of the first 10 or 15 minutes in the first half. The fullbacks moved higher, more yeah, consistently. Urgency is the word. Yeah, man. They moved right. the ball so much faster. From, you know, the 46th minute, as soon as the second half starts, relative to maybe the 40th minute of the first half, the ball was moving way faster. The fullbacks moved higher, faster. The wingers tucked inside, faster. The center midfielders yep. stayed inside and knew where they needed to be. Soto dropped in occasionally, but also was a real asset in counterpressing, I thought. That was another huge part of the second half for the U.S. Their pressure, the pressure on the ball as soon as they lost it in the attacking half was way better than it was in the first half. That allowed them to keep possession in the attacking third. Whereas in the first half, they really weren't even getting into the attacking third very often. So you have the positional tweaks, you have the urgency, then you couple that offensively with those same attributes defensively. Then you're really cooking and you start to create some things. And the U.S. pretty much created a string of really nice chances in the second half, starting around the 50th minute, and then the goals started coming in. Yep. We're going to talk about those goals. We're going to talk about individual performers in just a moment. But first, uh, another word from today's sponsors. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Joe, so I want to I get back to the urgency word there for a moment because I think that's such an important thing to remember about this game, about this competition, and why it's important. Because you and I, in previewing it, said if they don't make it to the Olympics, like that's bad, certainly, but it won't feel like such a knockout blow as it did in the past because we have so many young players playing another uh 
positions both for the national team and at club level. Like it, it wouldn't have felt that negative. And yet now coming away from this game and seeing how they solved problems, I realize how bummed I would be if they don't make it to the Olympics, if, if the knockout round goes poorly for whatever reason. But I say that because this game felt like one of those moments in which a team responds at halftime and figures things out. And urgency, again, is the key word there because it wasn't just like, be better, do more, and then it was panicking and it was like rushed shots and low percentage opportunities. It felt like it was a team in a meaningful competitive game figuring out solutions, playing their way through and scoring some goals. I don't care about the relative weakness of the opponent. I really don't because a bunkered team is a bunkered team. They're hard to beat. They're hard to break down. And this was a team that were clearly emphasizing sit deep, counter, use your physicality, use your speed when you can, use some gamesmanship when you can, lots of cries for red cards and elbows that were not red cards or elbows. And so for the U.S., to not respond with panic, but in my mind, to respond with urgency, to respond with commitment and fight. That's not always a thing we see from from the U.S. national team and certainly not always a thing we see from U.S. youth national teams. So I found that to be tremendously encouraging. No, I'm right there with you. Just the the change. You could see it as soon as the second half started. Yeah, there were all these tactical things that were different and they were subtle. Yes, but they come out and they look different in possession. They look a little bit different defensively. But the biggest thing is they were moving the ball faster and they were moving faster as individual people. If you're trying to break down a block, the best thing you can do, or at least the baseline thing you have to do is move the ball side to side quickly, force the block Mm -hmm. to shift, force them to move side to side. In the first half, the U.S. just weren't doing that. It was too slow. It was a five-yard pass to the fullback, a five-yard pass back to the center back, a five-yard pass over to the number eight. Over and over again. In the second half, that was totally different. They moved the ball. They broke lines a little bit more. They moved players into more dangerous spaces in the attack. Got that 2-3-5 shape instead of the the weird, rough 3-2-5. I, I mean, the first half was just, it was different yeah. and it was disorganized. Yeah. It's a big difference from the first 45 to the second. Yeah, it felt like like they had done a training drill. Uh, in which, like, if Jackson Ewell gets the ball, like, you have to be on this cone, you have to be on this cone, you have to be on this cone. When he plays the ball here, now you have to shift to that cone and you have to shift to that cone. And so in that first half, it felt like everybody would, like, take a touch or an extra touch while everybody else got to where they needed to be, then the ball would go. Oh, now it's at this cone, so now you're supposed to be here, so he's going to hold the ball, and you have to... And it was just very rote. It was very, this is how we have to play. When I have the ball, I have to take touches until this player gets into the spot that he's supposed to be, then I will play him in the ball. But once I've played that ball, I now have to get into the spot where I'm supposed to be. And it was just memorized. It was a little bit slow. And I think there was more freedom in the second half. They played a bit more extemporaneously. They improvised on occasion, and I thought it worked pretty well, which is why we get four goals. Joe, do we need to talk about the goals individually? Is there anything in particular you want to talk about, say, the first goal, or can we just kind of jump around and talk about things we really liked in that second half, uh, aside from tactics and the ball actually moving forward? I think we can jump around, right? I mean, we kind of, I I guess I kind of talked about the first goal a little bit. It's that entry pass from Glad gets into Lewis, and then things go to work. The U.S. just kind of goes to work from there. The ball moves wide to Julian Araujo, which I thought was a theme of the second half. Araujo, again, much higher, able to whip in some balls similar to what Vines was doing in the first half a little bit, and then again, similar to what he was doing, Sam Vines, against Costa Rica on that assist to Jesus Ferreira last game. So it was the fullbacks getting higher, and then just in general, Taylor, really nice passing sequences. The third goal for the U.S., 
it's a 19 pass sequence that lead to yeah. that that leads to that goal. Every U.S. player touches the ball. Every U.S. player out on the field touches the ball. And then the fourth goal from Georgi Mihailovic comes from a 12-pass sequence. The U.S. were moving possession, moving around in possession, and moving the ball in possession so much better as that half or on. Also, the Dominican Republic was getting tired. They were getting stretched. So that's a big factor here as well. But the U.S. took advantage of that with some really nice possession sequences. I thought, and the Georgi Mihailovic is the impact substitute, I thought made... A lot of sense on the day and seemed to suit Mihailovic as well because he gets that goal, as you said. Uh, for the third goal, he has that really nice uh, sort of sideways pass that's really, really well-weighted that Dotson then takes expertly with his first touch. I thought Hassani Dotson, any doubts I had about him are completely gone because <laughs> his first touch for both of these goals was excellent. So, too, was the finish for both goals. But I thought Mihailovic as well creating, finding pockets of space, driving at people, taking people on, um, and then also being willing to kind of put his body on the line. He takes that big hit later on in the game. Uh, he takes a couple big hits as he's kind of playing balls or after the ball is gone. I do think the Dominican Republic got a bit more physical, got a bit more frustrated. That fourth goal especially was, I tweeted about this, if you go back, like, there are attempted like like sweep the leg tackles three or four times in that sequence of 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 the DR just trying to make that professional foul but also maybe you know just leave a mark as well and instead they aren't aren't able to make contact and i just thought the the swiftness with which the US moved the ball the creativity the vision the passing intent the attacking intent all just so much better from that first half yeah i can't say enough about it i thought it was it was excellent and I saw a lot of a lot of people talking on Twitter. When you see the starting lineup, and it's Perea, Jackson Ewell, yep. and Johnny Cardoso, I saw a lot of people saying what we'd all kind of thought when the roster was dropped. Where are the creative players? How is this team mm. going to create chances in midfield? And the answer is to go back and watch the first 15 minutes of the second half. It's the same personnel. It's still Jackson Ewell, Andres Perea, and Johnny Cardoso. But it's those players working much more effectively within a yes. more cohesive, stronger, tighter system. The whole idea that the U.S. is working towards is that the system can be the playmaker, or at least it can be a good playmaker, and maybe take on the role of a classic number 10, but distribute that work over all 11 field players. The U.S. showed that in the first 15 minutes of the second half. They showed that, yeah, this is not the ideal central midfield personnel, if you're Jason Christ. It's not. And I'm sure he would tell you that if you got him off mic. But you you can still work with those players. You can still rotate a little bit and get results against poor opposition, against CONCACAF opposition, you can put players into different spots and work them in the system and use that to create chances. The U.S. did that mm-hmm. for the first 15 minutes. They get the goal in the 61st minute. And then the impact subs, Hassani Dotson and Georgi Mihailovic, go to work within that system still. Mihailovic out on the left wing, tucking inside into that left half space in a little bit of a different role than we saw him last game. I thought Mihailovic was great. As you said, Taylor Dotson, again, really, really good. Nice finishes on both of his goals. But the system really started to come together in the second half. The players, even though they're not hyper-creative guys, started to work well within that system. And then that transitioned perfectly into getting those subs on the field and finishing it off. Yeah, and and the system also fundamental in how you're winning the ball back. Because I think in the first half, if you have one of your number eights spread a little bit too wide and maybe you give the ball away, you just don't have the numbers there when you need to win it back. And I contrast that with the second half, the 56th minute, uh, Perea has one. And in the, I think the 82nd minute, Soto has one of these where the Dominican Republic get the ball, they're moving it forward through the middle of the field. And one of those midfielders, uh, or I guess in Soto's case, an attacker, 
makes a good 15 to 20 yard hard sprint to get back in and sort of now they're contesting that ball. Maybe it's going to be a poke tackle. Maybe it's just a shoulder challenge, but there's going to be a loose ball that ensues. And I think in the first half when that happened, that poke tackle went to maybe a center back for the U.S., but it rolls 20 yards back downfield. Or if it is poked away, it goes out to like a non-threatening position, and then the U.S. has to kind of get back on your cones, everybody back in position, and then we can build from there. In the second half, when you have numbers central, when Perea wins that ball, it's a poke tackle to, I think, Jackson Ewell. He turns and sprints forward and demands the ball back. There's an attacking intent there because the U.S. wins it back, and now we can transition. In the 82nd minute, the one I mentioned was Soto. It's a 20-yard sprint, straight back, hard running, and the tackle is literally just he puts that toe in and pokes the ball away, but he pokes it back to Perea, who then plays the ball forward, and now the U.S. is counterpressing. And that sort of ability to win the ball back, the fight to win the ball back, but then quickly try to punish the opponent for being out of position, for getting caught with the ball, isn't a thing that happened in the first half because it's not a scenario that existed in the first half. And so, again, the United States finding opportunities through the system, through the individual players where they needed to be, that felt much more like what the game plan was in the second half than in the first. Agreed. And yeah, I I don't think within the starting 11, there were a lot of standout performers in this game within the system. Yeah, Sam Vines was okay. Perea did some things well defensively, not really strong offensively. I don't think he's an asset with the ball at this point, at least in the role he was put in. Jackson Ewell did well even playing in a spot that I don't think generally is his best role. Saucedo we talked about already. I don't think Lewis or Ferreira were particularly strong. I thought Johnny Cardoso was bad like really bad in that first half. It looks like he doesn't really know what to do. He looks awkward out there. And it's really harsh for a 19-year-old. And I'm not saying he's not going to be a good player. He just wasn't good in this game, which does line up with what I'd seen from him on tape. We talked about it before previewing these games. He doesn't really look like a player that I think can contribute at a meaningful level in this group right now. The center backs were fine. I mean, a a lot of players were fine. Only a couple were bad and only a couple were maybe good. But the bench players that really come in, and this is credit to Jason Kreiss, honestly. The bench players that come in, in Mihailovic, in Dotson, even in Soto at halftime, Tessman was was good and brought energy and gave Jackson Ewell a rest, maybe most importantly, in the 80th minute. I thought he was he was fine. Benji Michelle was okay coming in for Jonathan Lewis in the 69th minute. But really, it was Mihailovic and Dotson, for me, who stood out in this game because of what they were able to do, coming in and still working within that system and creating and capitalizing on the attacking chances that the U.S. were were putting together. I think I do have a little bit of, like, like more love for Cardoso than other people. So, in my mind, what I saw in that first half was him maybe being the only U.S. player who was okay with taking risk and was okay with... True, he did have a couple nice moments, that- yeah. He, he did, but I don't, I don't disagree with what you said either, that he also gave the ball away a lot and did not seem to know what the smartest pass was at any given moment. There didn't seem to be a lot of like, oh, he's figuring it out. He's probing for weakness. He's found an opportunity here. It felt like maybe he had been told by Jason Christ, like, hey, try some stuff. Don't be afraid to take people on. Don't be afraid to try some passes. But when the U.S. is playing as static and as slow as they were, a player who keeps giving the ball away, trying risky passes, doesn't look like they're trying to do something different to spark the attack. It looks like not only can the U.S. not create anything, but when they do, they instantly turn it away because Cardoso can't complete a pass. I do think the system did not put him in a very favorable situation. He also did not then rise to that occasion or really shine in that role. So I'm with you that I still have some lingering questions about this team. And I know a lot of people uh, on social media that I saw were frustrated about 
about the roster still, about why isn't uh, Ibobasi in there, why isn't um, – uh, who, Eric Williamson. Eric Williamson. Other. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, like, why? Why don't you have those two players there? Williamson can help with the attack. He can help with the midfield. He can do lots of different things. And I think it's fine to be frustrated by the roster and the way this one was built, if that's the way you want to go. But I think they can be, things can be two things. You can be frustrated by the roster, but you can also look at this game and see what they did and see progress and see Jason Christ getting a response from his players. It doesn't mean the other thing is now nullified and he isn't a good player. It just means maybe they could have used him here, but he's not here. So let's figure out what they're trying to do. Um, And then if you want to have those lingering concerns or criticisms, by all means, go ahead. But I think... I'm I'm less interested in that right now because I want to see what they were trying to do and what they were trying to solve. And I think we did get some answers as to who can rise to the occasion, who will fight for those goals. And honestly, who can score those goals? Because both of the finishes from Dotson were just so good and so clinical. They felt like goals that should have been scored by a number nine, even if they were not. I almost couldn't believe it when I watched it. I saw him take the ball. I saw him receive the ball from Mihailovic on that first goal, the shot he's about to score and just the way he strikes the ball, I'm thinking, there's there's no way, right? There's no way the technique is going to be that clean. One thing I love to do with Jordan on MLS Assist is I'll ask her, hey, how hard is that finish out of 10? How hard is that finish? And almost every time I ask her, it's a, it's a 9 or a 10 because I only ask yeah. her on goals like this one. The technique <laughs> is so spot on. And you only really have that perspective, I feel like, if you've been deep in and around the game or you've played the game. And that's why I asked Jordan because she has that experience, whereas I don't. Dotson's two finishes to me. I didn't ask her, but I'm sure... They're high on the difficulty scale just of how – because of how he strikes the ball. It is oh, – it's poetry, Taylor. It's just poetry. <laughs> well, it's 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 the, the strikes for sure. It's also for the first the touch. one. It's just – it's the touch to then immediately set himself up for the second touch to be the shot off of kind of a half volley. And for the second goal uh, – or for Dotson's second goal rather – it's the touch to go around the defender, but then still keep it at a good angle where he can put it far post and put it side netting, and he does – Again, just really, really good goals from Dotson. Really good work from the U.S. in the second half and a really good win overall. Uh, really briefly, Joe, uh, before we call this one a day, we should talk about Mexico unless there's anything else you'd like to say about the U.S. from that second half. Not second half related, but real quick, I just want to say I'm still sure. team. I don't think Abobasi, Eric Williamson, Cole Bassett, or Frankie Amaya would change this team and really alter their cool. creative ability in possession. So I just want to reestablish myself on team no fun uh, because, <laughs> I don't know, it just feels like the right place for me to be well i appreciate that uh (laughs) where the uh place for the u.s to be is right now is in their final group stage game against mexico who who did win last night a 3-0 win over costa rica which means it will be the u.s with six points versus mexico with six points Uh, whoever wins obviously tops the group and man that's a a good mexico team they started uh 10 of the same 11 against costa rica as they did against the dominican republic the one that stood out to me would be alexis vega started as their number nine i believe in both games uh but moves wherever he wants uh he arrives late into the box when you think he's completely removed from the play like jesus ferreira did for the u.s's goal uh against costa rica um and i thought just the way he can find space but play balls in but still shoot but still connect passes even if he's only like eight yards from goal uh i don't know if we'll get him starting because maybe we will get some rotation as i said 10 of the same 11 that's a lot of minutes for not that many players so maybe mexico will rotate for that that final game knowing that the u.s has also just already advanced you know who's going through uh but if vega doesn't start then i think there are other players who can come in who are just as good so either way i think it's going to be a tough game for the u.s 
this game against Mexico, you hate to say it, but this game against Mexico does not matter. It does not matter. Yep. The U.S. are through to the semifinal. They have one more game that they need to win, and it's that semifinal game. It's not the Mexico game. So Jason Christ weirdly has put himself in a in a strange spot. Not this is not bad, but he's already rotated. Mexico haven't rotated yet. They're going to rotate. You would think. You would really think against the U.S. in their third group stage game because they know the same thing that the U.S. knows. That game does not matter. This last group stage game doesn't make any difference one way or the other. You can win by ten. You can lose by ten. It doesn't matter. Mexico at this point is likely going to play for the semifinal, which is how I think the U.S. should play. So I don't know what lineup the U.S. should use. I don't know how Christ wants to rotate. But to me, the focus should be he knows the fitness of these guys. So you work off of that. You work backwards and say, okay, who is ready right now for the semifinal game or who needs a rest for the semifinal game? And then you you work accordingly. You say, okay, if Jackson yeah. Ewell needs a break to go 90 minutes in the semifinal, you do not play him against Mexico. Maybe you give him 10 minutes off the bench in garbage time, but it doesn't matter. If Jesus Ferreira and Justin Glad are on yellow cards, which they are, Maybe you don't start them against Mexico because you don't want to deal with that one game suspension against the semifinal opponent opponent coming from the other group. So Mm -hmm. you really have to be smart about this and play the guys that you think are fit enough to go. And if you want them to go again in the semifinal game, you you let them go out there and maybe you play them 60, but not 90. So it's a puzzle, right? But it's a puzzle that Christ needs to figure out because you need that strongest group, whoever that is. I don't really know who that is right now, and neither does Christ. Need that strongest group going against the semifinal opponent, not Mexico. There's always the risk of you go too weak, and if they get blown out 5-0, does that totally kill your morale? Right, right. But then vice versa, if you go all in, your best possible team, everybody just like like is cramping, every single part of their body is cramping by the end of the game, but you get a, a 1-0 win or a 2 0 win, but then you're sort of in a position where you've got some injuries, you've got some tired legs, you've got a couple suspensions, and then you get knocked out in the uh, in the semifinal, which is what you have to win if you want to go to the Olympics, then it's like, great, you spend all your energy in a relatively meaningless game against Mexico to then be eliminated in the knockout round when you had to win doesn't really, really work. So I think there's there's that fine line of if they lose, I don't think it's that big of a deal. If they lose really badly, maybe it becomes a big deal. But I think if we see a, a rotated Mexico and if we see a, a U.S. team, and again, Joe, to your point, like I don't know what the strongest possible 11 would be. So even if we do get it, I'm not sure I'll know that's it until we see it on the field. Um, but I think we can sort of be okay with whatever the result is as long as it doesn't completely destroy morale and chemistry. Agreed. Yeah, that's a really good point because I can think about it from the cold, hard kind of rotational fact standpoint. But yeah, these are people. And if you go out and you do get smacked against Mexico, Mm -hmm. where does that leave you for the semifinal game? Christ can say, it's okay, we're playing for the semifinal, blah, blah, blah. But if you're a player, you still want to go out and win. So you still want to put it in a competitive group. But I just think in terms of priority, you still have to make sure you're playing for that semifinal game because if you win that game, you're in the Olympics. And that's that's what the goal of this whole thing is. Yeah, and and I think like from a competitor standpoint, I think you can say, ah, like this we've already won, it's not a big deal. But I really do believe like I've played in games where like like my Again, amateur level, not the same. Want to get that up front. But like, like my indoor team, like we had the title wrapped up and we have like one game to spare. And it's like you're playing that game and you've already won, but you don't, it doesn't matter. Like you still want to win. And I think that that is kind of fundamental to what, what winning is and what competitive soccer is, is that these teams are going to go out wanting to win and wanting to play. So it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a scrap against Mexico. I also think it's it's less of a big deal because right now, uh, the other group, we only have uh, one game played so far, but it was Honduras beating Haiti 3-0, Canada beating El Salvador 2-0. Tonight, Honduras plays El Salvador, 
Canada plays Haiti. So we might also get another situation in which if both of those games go as the first game's scorelines indicate, uh, Haiti also had to play a red carded, so they're going to be uh, having to figure that one out. Um, we might well get sort of another dead rubber game from them. But I don't really know if I have a, a strong preference for, for who the United States could meet. It's not a situation of, oh, we definitely want to finish first and not second because otherwise we're getting a stronger team. In the past, that was the case because that other team we would probably be getting is Mexico. Here we can't see Mexico again until the final. And I think that really is kind of the only team we wanted to avoid and that we have to or definitely will. I sort of think finish second and then beat whomever you you get in the next round, fine. Finish first and beat whomever you get in the next round, also fine. Just get to the final. Agreed. Yeah, Mexico had the U.S. on goal difference right now. So if it's a draw between these two teams on Wednesday night, which is when that USA-Mexico game is, if it's a draw, then Mexico finishes first, the U.S. finishes second, U.S. plays the top team in the other group. But yeah, either way, the U.S. is not going to find out who they're playing until after they play on Wednesday. It'll be Thursday before they find out because that the other group doesn't play till the day after. So either way, you can't predict what's going to happen. And I'm not sure it matters a whole lot either way. The U.S. just needs to focus on on getting rested, getting ready to play that semifinal game. Not that there still won't be interesting takeaways, I think especially tactically, from how the U.S. approaches that Mexico game. It just cannot matter as much as the semifinal. All right. Uh, anything else to say about the U.S.'s win over the Dominican Republic or that game against Mexico, Joe, before we call this one a day? Edison Azcona is the greatest soccer player in the history of soccer players, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's what I wanted to say. I was just checking my notes there. Yeah. Uh, where did that come from? No, it's it's Dominican Republic's left-sided attacking midfielder, their left winger in this game. Inter-Miami homegrown. He's 17, but he was really good. Yeah. He was one of the best players in this game on either team. Uh, you put a, a good player on a poor team, they're going to look a lot better than a good player on a good team. But still, I thought he was really fun and just made me excited. Maybe we'll get to see him play under Jason Christ and Phil Neville for Inter-Miami mm-hmm. this year. So, I don't know. How to give him a plug there, Taylor? Good call. All right. Well, I like that. Nice plugging, Joe. <laughs> um, and I look forward to additional plugs tomorrow when we talk about the the senior men's national team, the roster there, the starting 11. We'd like to see maybe also looking a little bit at Jamaica and what they've been doing, who will be in their squad, uh, previewing that game and maybe looking a little bit more at the uh, USA-Mexico game in the final uh, group stage game of this competition. But not too much because, again, we're not sure what Mexico will do and we're not really sure it matters all that much. But Joe, anything else before we call this one a day? No, I have no more plugs to give, Taylor. All right, no more plugs to give than Joe Lowry. Thank you very much for taking all the time to talk about all the things today. You got it. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. We will be back tomorrow with another episode. (laughs) 